Welcome to the Labor History Podcast. This episode, Race, Class, and Policing. Produced by Victor Liu. I'm Avery Ware. Later, we'll hear from Alex Wells, who produced part of the content for the talk. The U.S. is the world's richest country, but it is number 27 in life expectancy. We're virtually alone among rich countries in not having free health care for all. Though California's community college, state, and UC systems were free in the 1960s, today, The U.S. fails to provide affordable higher education, much less free college, as in Scandinavia. Nor is there free child care, as in Scandinavia. As union members, we have a ready explanation for this. The U.S. stands out among rich countries for a low unionization rate, which is down from its 1954 high of 35% to under 11% today. Compare that to 82% for Sweden, 76% for Finland, and 57% for Norway and Denmark. Capitalism requires a good investment climate to be healthy. A good investment climate, in turn, requires that on average the return on investment exceeds the amount invested. This means the cost of labor must on average be below the value produced by labor. Therefore, competition constantly pressures companies to preserve profit margins by lowering wages. And it is precisely unionized workers who are best able to stand up to this pressure. But if low unionization explains the relatively poor conditions of U.S. workers, then what is it that explains the low unionization rate? The U.S. invented racism and white supremacy. The very concept of race did not exist in the world until slave owners in the colonies invented it to justify African enslavement. Racism and white supremacy have spread to the world beyond, but the roots are deepest and the effects most profound here. As we learned in a previous session by Alex, slave emancipation led to a struggle during post-Civil War Reconstruction over the fate of the freed people. While ex-slaves organized, fought for land, unions, schools, votes, and political representation, northern workers increasingly objectively allied with them and formed the first significant unions and the first campaigns for the eight-hour day. But though the ex-slave owners lost the Civil War, in this battle of Reconstruction, they won. And in their victory, They reorganized white supremacy and have continued to update it until today in the forms of sharecropping, lynchings, the KKK, segregation, housing discrimination, police brutality, and mass incarceration. Racism ruled the South and also seeped out and poisoned the North. The South to this day is a low-wage anti-union stronghold bringing down the national unionization rate and the average national wage. Indeed, many more good-paying union factory jobs have moved to the non-union low-wage South than ever moved to Mexico or China. And the North's union movement has itself been weakened by divide-and-conquer methods and too often by the racism of white workers and unions. So nationwide, 
racism has countered political demands for economic redistribution by falsely racializing welfare and by inflating the political scare tactics of tough-on-crime, law enforcement spending, etc. All of this explains what's different for working people in the United States. And law enforcement agencies haven't just diverted politics away from taxing the rich. These agencies have also been the frontline enforcers of the white supremacist capitalist order. Alex will now discuss the origins of the police. Then I like let him go and then try to go right into my last part. Law enforcement suffered two great defeats in the 20th century. In 1934, there were general strikes in three entire U.S. cities, San Francisco, Minneapolis, and Toledo. In each one, the police attacked picket lines, killing two workers in San Francisco and one in Minneapolis. But in each strike, the workers armed themselves and defended picket lines against police attack. The police failed to break the strikes and restart work by escorting scabs. The local governments had no more cards to play in preventing unionization, so the companies had to accept it. These three successes led to a flood of strikes, culminating in 1937 when there were occupations in 424 factories. The world's biggest corporations, GM, U.S. Steel, General Electric, accepted unions as workers and supportive communities over and over defeated violent local police in union recognition strikes. The federal government now felt, with force having failed, that the working class had to be given the New Deal, widespread unionization, and a generation of rising living standards to placate us and halt the growing influence of the Communist Party among organized workers. More famously, the Southern Civil Rights Movement overcame violent police repression in a succession of cities from 1956 to 1965, overthrowing legal segregation. The black freedom struggle then spread to the north in the form of ghetto uprisings. The organization of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, which, remember, started doing neighborhood patrols to monitor and prevent police brutality. And the mass organization of public sector unions with disproportionately black and brown membership. But these two periods of historic victory of the working class and people of color while finding a way to overcome the police as the capitalist's last line of defense, of course, did not reclaim control and ownership of the wealth produced by our work, but owned by corporate America. So once these great movements died down, the capitalists found political formulae for rolling back both our material gains and our organizations. After the 60s, President Nixon's infamous Southern strategy of winning over the segregationist base of the Democrats, combined with his, quote, war on crime based on inflaming racist fears of all classes of Northern white people, became the dominant politics of the country. That was from the 1970s onward. Reagan's war on drugs kicked it up a notch. 
So then did Clinton's combination of federal funding for local police departments and harsh sentencing laws. That's why the U.S. went from 200,000 people in prison in 1970 to over 2 million 30 years later. Today, with 6% of the world's population, the U.S. has 25% of its prisoners. Black and brown people in the U.S. have the world's highest incarceration rates. And as a result, even white people in the United States have an incarceration rate that is fourth highest in the world. In this atmosphere, the long tradition of police violence on people of color has flourished with some 1,000 people killed by the police annually as police have expanded, militarized, and weaponized. All of this has given the political cover for unpopular policies, tax cuts for the rich, cuts to social services, privatization, union busting, the decline of defined benefit pensions, and affordable college. As always, the government has sought to help organize a healthy profit system by increasing our exploitation. As always in U.S. history, racism has led the way. And as part of that, police powers have grown, cutting into social service budgets and intimidating resistance efforts. Police unions have become an important lobby, maintaining swollen law enforcement budgets, cruel sentencing laws, and unaccountable police practices. Law enforcement unions are some of the most fervent backers of our white supremacist, white nationalist president, Donald Trump. What are those of us in the labor movement to make of this? It's true that police are workers. Like the rest of the 81% of the U.S. population making up the working class, rank-and-file cops can be hired and fired, but can't hire and fire anyone else. That's why organizing in unions is effective for them. But law enforcement workers are an exception among workers. They are that section of the working people whose job it is to enforce the rules of the society based on exploiting the mass of the working people. Police are hired traitors to their own class, paid to defend the capitalist class and the capitalist state against us. That's why, as we have seen, whenever the working class as a whole has gained in our history, we have had to defeat the police in order to do that. And that is why we can't make common cause with police unions. Usually, when one group of workers win a strike, it helps all other workers by improving the labor market and increasing upward pressure on all wages. But when police win bigger budgets for their departments, which always get special treatment from local city councils, which after all, know that they are their armed defenders, it means working people face a better armed enemy on the picket lines and a larger occupying force in our neighborhoods terrorizing us and our families. A growing number of unions such as UAW Local 2865 here in California are calling for breaking all ties with police unions. By taking stands like these, our organizations can make it clear 
to the new freedom struggle in the streets that we stand on their side in the battle against the police. Much like it is hard for many workers to oppose their employers, because in the current system we depend on them for our survival, it can be hard to oppose the police because we have no alternative to the protection they're supposed to provide us. But just as a truly just and democratic workplace is possible only when workers own the wealth we produce, electing our own bosses and running production under workers' control, true safety will only be possible when we directly organize our own community and workplace patrols. This is, of course, only possible when we become more organized. But when we do, it becomes natural. When workers in Seattle went on general strike in 1919, the strike committee organized unarmed World War I veterans to patrol the streets. Police, for their part, fled the city. But looting and chaos were things that did not happen during the general strike. All reports I have read say that the city was more peaceful than ever. When the Black Panther Party's patrols grew in Oakland, California, many say there was a similar effect. In both cases, organized working class patrols happened in neighborhoods where the movement created a new sense of empowerment. More, the Seattle Strike Committee organized free dining halls during the strike, and the Panthers organized a free breakfast program. Working class self-organization thus has the potential to build safety patrols that work directly for us, rather than working to keep us exploited, disorganized, and weak, like the capitalist police always have and always must. And that same working class organization, if powerful enough, can also restore control over the wealth to us, the working class producers of that wealth, redistributing the tremendous riches of modern society to end poverty and cut off the cause of most crime at the roots. To move in this direction today, the labor movement must support defunding the police, isolating police unions, taxing the rich, and taking our place in the movement for black lives.